journeying toward Easter. Lent, you remember, is that season of the Christian calendar where we prepare to remember and to celebrate uh, the passion of Christ, uh, his, his death on Good Friday, his rest on Holy Saturday, and of course his resurrection on on Easter Sunday. And for the Lent season, we've been exploring, or we are exploring, uh, a series of stories and interactions in the Gospel of John, uh, really drawn out of chapter 11, 12, and 13 uh, of John. Let me give you a quick recap. Um, there is the passage we're going to do today is on the, on the bulletin, inside your bulletin, so you can look at that. But on the first Sunday of Lent, we looked at, of course, John chapter 11, that amazing story where Jesus shows up late to a funeral and then just ruins the funeral by raising the guy from the dead, right? Against all expectations. And on that day, Jesus revealed himself to be so much more than uh, just a healer, just a wonder worker. Um, he was doing amazing things. But on this day, he showed himself to be the very resurrection and the life. And we looked that week at how, what that means for us, how it means that we can trust Jesus completely with our lives. Because if Jesus can handle death, then aren't you able to trust him with your life? Big challenge there. Last week we looked at, into the, the next story, and it was the second story that still had Lazarus and Mary and Martha as part of that story. Jesus had returned to their home, perhaps only days after raising Lazarus from the dead, and they hosted a dinner in his honor. And at that dinner, uh, Mary, one of Lazarus' sisters, who we met uh, in chapter 11, she was so taken with gratitude for Jesus and what he had done for them that she comes in and she pours this incredibly expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair. Extravagant devotion for one who had done so much for her and for her family. And it was a real inspiration and a challenge for us that Jesus is worth anything and everything we can give him. We can pour it all out and know that he is trustworthy. Well, that meal's over. They chat long into the night. And the next morning dawns bright and clear. And Jesus decides to head into Jerusalem. People are, are still hanging around from the day before. I imagine it is one of those scenes where you, you kind of get up early and then some guy jolts up from behind the couch, you know. <laughs> you walk out in the yard and there's people camped out on the ground. It was one of those mornings. They were all eager to get a piece of Jesus. And so by the time Jesus headed into the city, he was already surrounded by fans. He was already surrounded by heralds. And the news of his coming to Jerusalem just spread out before him. The roads were already packed because it was the biggest week and the weekend of the year. Jewish pilgrims had crammed in from all over the known world. They'd come from Egypt, from Babylon, Rome, Carthage, uh, Antioch, Ephesus, as well as up and down the length of Israel, all crashing Jerusalem for the biggest party of the year, the annual Passover celebration, celebrating the great exodus that God had accomplished for them when he delivered them out of Egypt, but particular out from under their oppressors many centuries before. That's where we're going to pick up the story Read from John chapter 12, 12 to 19. It's, it's inside your bulletin there. The next day, it's the day after the party, the, the, the dinner at Lazarus' house, uh, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now for many of us, this is a really familiar story. A story that we've heard or seen depicted in a variety of things. For some of us, this might be kind of new. We might only associate donkeys with Jesus at the nativity. Christians have traditionally celebrated this event of Jesus coming to Jerusalem on what we've called Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday right before Easter. This year would be April 9th. And they celebrate it by remembering this triumphal ending. But we're going through John, and this is where it is in the story, and John actually has a whole bunch of stuff going on before we get to the trial and death of Jesus. What we're going to do today is just kind of walk through a bit of the story, and then at the end I'd like to make some implications and some ways that the story has challenged me and I think challenges us. Let's first look at the crowd, this crowd of people. All of them are very excited about Jesus, and they're giving him incredibly high praise. The thing they're saying, things they're saying about him we want to explore. But first let's look at the, the crowd. They're made up of a few groups. First there's the crowd that has come in for the Passover. They've come from who knows where, but upon arriving in Jerusalem, they begin to hear amazing stories about this wonder worker, prophet, healer, Jesus. And you've got to know for sure that the very first thing they're hearing, it's only days after the event, the very first thing they're hearing about Jesus would have been the last thing he had just done. The most stunning event of all, the resurrection of Lazarus. Whatever they were up to that day, they just dropped it. And they headed down the road a few miles to meet Jesus who was coming into the city. Then there were those who came with Jesus from Bethany, just a few miles out of Jerusalem, eyewitnesses to the Lazarus event itself. These were the storytellers. And they were able to describe what had happened in detail. You know, they were there and they, they could talk about how the women had waited and waited for Jesus and Jesus hadn't come and all the stress that was involved and all the worry and all the prayers. And, and then they were there when, when Jesus finally showed up and they, they watched and listened as he talked to Martha and then, and then, and then Mary came and, and, and then they, they could talk about the prayer that Jesus prayed in front of everyone. And then, unbelievably, how he had asked them to roll back the tomb and everybody said, no, he's going to stink and all that. And then, and then he, called out, Lazarus, come out. And they can, I was standing right there. I was right there beside Jesus. It was unbelievable. And then Lazarus, he come right out. And people are like, no, he didn't. And yes, he did. I was there. There's Lazarus. He's walking with Jesus now. They're excited about it. And they're sharing the news. They're telling everyone what he had done. I mean, wouldn't you? I know some of you. You have a hard time keeping secret if somebody's having a baby. You like to blow the lid off surprise birthday parties. And imagine having this kind of news. Like the best news you've ever heard, and you were one of the eyewitnesses, like, I was there when it happened. You know, tell everybody. You like to gather the crowd and give the details, you know? And then when people question you, you're like, oh no, come over here, Jimmy, come, come, come. And he goes, yeah, I was there. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Then, to be able to point out Jesus coming along the way and everyone flock, ah, it must have been amazing. And of course, as the crowd grows, people hear the story told. Again, the story of a man who brought someone back from death, and then they see that guy walk by. Well, what's more important that day, do you think? Sifting the wheat? <laughs> you know, polishing the wagon? There's nothing more important that day. They drop everything, say, let's go, and they join in this crowd, this throng of worshipers. They grab a palm branch. They're thrilled to be caught up in this grand march toward the city. It must have been something to be part of that group, hey? 
thinking about that this week. Like, what would have would been part of that jostling, the buzz, the excitement, the, the choking dust, I'm sure. But, you know, just the excitement to be part of that amazing time and the buzz and the sense of expectation. God is going to do something, being part of this band of revelers surrounding Jesus. This march for Jesus, as it were, is a direct result of the raising of Lazarus. It's because of what Jesus did in Bethany that all this is happening. And it's, it's brought about people who have sort of found faith in Jesus. We'll explore what that means. But also, it has hardened his enemies. The city is all abuzz with who he, who he is, and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. In John's Gospel, this fourth of the stories of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus is the epic climax to everything Jesus has been doing every bit of his earthly ministry. And the event shows most clearly who he is, and it brings about his sharpest opposition. It's what really triggers or tips the opposition that then leads to his death. Uh, let me, I want to take a moment and just show you how that rolls out in John, uh, partly because it underscores what's happening here, but also um, because I want to help you read the Gospel of John as you go through it. You see, through this whole Gospel, Jesus performs what John dubs as signs. None of the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't call them that. They don't use that language in the same way. John calls them signs. And they were either miracles or healings or a wonder of some kind that Jesus performed. And these signs, as John has them, were meant to point beyond themselves to the reality or the identity of Jesus. Kind of like the sign alongside of a highway points beyond itself. You know, you see a sign on the highway that says a viewpoint in two kilometers. How many of you stop and stare at the sign? Because it's an amazing sign. No, you don't. The sign points beyond itself to the viewpoint. That's the point of the sign. And how John writes his gospel and, and, and lines up the signs that we see in the gospel of John, they're all designed to point beyond themselves. And when people get tripped up is when they begin to focus on the sign and not the reality that the sign is referring to. These signs are all about making Jesus known, and they all support John's whole purpose as a book to help people see who Jesus is so that they can trust their lives to him. Throughout the story, John arranges his signs very, very deliberately. He moves from Jesus' very first sign in chapter 2, water into wine at the wedding in Cana, and then, count it with me, he moves to the healing of the official's son, then the healing of a lame man, then the feeding of 5,000, then walking on water, then healing a man born blind, and now the raising of Lazarus. Have you counted that? Seven. Very intentional. John lines up seven signs, the seven signs of Jesus' ministry, and seven, of course, the special number in the Hebrew mind, and it's designed to point out that this raising of Lazarus is the final climactic sign pointing to who Jesus really is just before he goes to the cross. And that's, of course, the ultimate revelation. The way John designs his story is to help us as readers say, don't, don't miss this. See what's going on. Now, I point that all out to you because it really sets up what happens next, not only in this story, but in the rest of the Jesus story. All these signs were meant to show people who Jesus really was, but ironically, very few could see it. Very few recognized what or who the sign was referring to. People got so focused on the signs themselves that they missed Jesus. Or as here, here in this story, we see that people begin to interpret the signs in certain ways. They interpret them so that they then say, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's about, and they miss the ultimate purpose. Even when we see in this story the worship clamor 
you know, it's, it's, it's being raised to a, an amazing, deafening pitch. And people are proclaiming Jesus as their king, and yet we see maybe they don't fully understand what they're doing. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. If you can imagine yourself in that worshiping crowd that day, you can imagine yourself amidst all the, the clamor and the shouting, you would have heard a lot of things said, a lot of interpretations given. John highlights three of them. And they're all rooted. Everything that's said here is rooted in the history of Israel, their history of God acting in the past to deliver them, and their hope that God was now, in Jesus, acting to bring about another deliverance, to save them. Three shouts that we hear. First, the crowd shouts, Hosanna, which just means save or save us. It was a shout that people would use to hail a a king that they maybe had had, had raised up, or someone that was, had come to deliver them. Hosanna is this giant call out to God to come and to do what he had promised to do, to rescue his people from their oppressors and to deliver them to freedom. The nation of Israel was held under the oppressive and idolatrous regime of Rome, and they were crying out to God to bring a new exodus. And now in Jesus, they believed that he was doing just that. This Hosanna really is a way of saying, God, Do what you did before. Save us, Jesus. We believe that you are the one that God has anointed. You now who can turn back death. Come and lead us to life as a nation. Push back our Roman overlords and lead us to freedom. Hosanna. Now, one of our cultural tendencies uh, here in the West, as it were, the things we've inherited in our ways of thinking, we often will make spiritual things very private. We'll, we'll kind of shrink them down. So we, we'll hear this Hosanna call as having really only to do with personal salvation. But the people of Israel did not view salvation as a private thing, as something that applied only between them and God. Salvation meant deliverance. It meant, yeah, it was very personal, but it was a deliverance for the whole people. Salvation meant righteousness, but it meant things being right in the world. God on the throne and God's people doing well and relationships doing well. That's what righteousness meant. Salvation meant that oppressors were judged and destroyed, that evil wasn't allowed to just run rampant. Salvation also meant that God wiped away their sins, both nationally and, and, and personally and corporately, and forgive them and heal them. So that's what Hosanna meant. It's all packed in there in that cry to save us. Next, the crowd shouts, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they doing here? They're using that worship psalm, the one we read, Psalm 118, a psalm that is all about God's faithfulness to bring salvation and deliverance. And now it's like they're taking it and they're applying it specifically to Jesus. When the crowd saw Jesus coming into the city that day, they believed that God was now finally taking action to save them. And they blessed Jesus for his coming. As we heard, Psalm 118 begins and ends with the words, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And how that's specifically seen is in the action that God is taking to save His people from their enemies. And this is what we hear all the way through Psalm 118. From start to finish, we hear that. In fact, if you read Psalm 118 with this in mind, you'll be astonished by how many references there are to that. You can also read the whole triumphal entry with Psalm 118 as kind of a grid or a lens through which you interpret it. Only one uh, line from this Psalm 118 is quoted. 
But ancients, they often did that, and at least everything I've read, says that when, a, when an ancient or an ancient writer like John, all the synoptics and others, when they quote a, quote a line, they often want to invoke the entire psalm. Many of the people who have read this would have had Psalm 118 memorized or would have turned to it like we did. The one line that's quoted, though, is significant. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's actually rooted in this expectation that God will come and deliver them. The phrase, in the name of the Lord, is is used four times total in this psalm. And the first three times it's used all refer to the cutting down of national enemies. You need to hear this really clear. This is super helpful. Let's read it. Psalm 118, uh, 10 to 12. It reads like this. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side. Let's say that line together. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees. They were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Are you seeing a bit of a theme there? When the crowd sings, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, evoking Psalm 118, what are they saying? Blessed are you, Jesus, who have come in the name of the Lord to cut down our enemies, to bring us salvation. You are here to save us. You are here to bring about our final deliverance. This is what they're saying when they sing, when they shout this out to Jesus. And as we, as we know, as we see, is they were partly right. They just didn't understand how he was going to do it. The third praise expressed is, blessed is the king of Israel. And if we miss the political overtones of the first two, it's hard to miss it on the third one. But we still do often, actually. We, we often will take this in a different direction. But these exuberant believers, they actually, they believe they found their king. And they were going up to the city, Zion, the great city of Jerusalem, to see their king inaugurated, enthroned, proclaimed as the king he really was. As we saw earlier, there were balances of power in the, in the religious sector with the political sector, and, and they, were, they were not keen on this. They, they held some power, and they were afraid that Jesus, by being proclaimed as king, was going to attract Rome's attention. No kidding, he would have. He did. And, and part of their response to him is their concern over keeping their power. There's a lot going on here in these three shouts we hear, but the, the central question that emerges is the question of the Gospel in John. Did the people who were praising Jesus in this throng of, of worshipers, did they actually believe in Jesus? The way, that, the way that John, the writer, is leading us to see Jesus, did they actually believe in him? Or maybe a more revealing question would be, who did they think they were worshiping on that day? What did they think they were doing? It's easy to hear this story with all the pomp and all the, all the raving fans, the wonderful statements that are made, the praise, the glory, the glitz, and the drama, and assume, well, they, it's finally, it's there. I mean, they're finally worshiping Jesus for who he really is. And all, this, all these things that are being said represent real, true, authentic faith in him. But at very best, it's only representing a glimmer of understanding. Mostly it's dead wrong, or as we see, deadly wrong. How do we know this? Well, John, Jesus, gives us one major clue. The donkey. The donkey scene with his back reference to Zechariah the prophet. As Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, he can see what's happening. They've already tried to crown him once earlier in the story. 
He can see what's happening. And so he grabs someone's donkey and he rides the rest of the way. It's not because he's tired and needed a ride. It wasn't because the sort of the pomp and everything had gone to his head and he thought, oh yeah, that'd be great, you know. Gotta get a little bit above the crowd so that everyone can see me a little bit better. That's not what's going on here. Jesus very deliberately finds a donkey, not a horse. I don't know about you, but I think a horse would be much nicer to ride. So he could make a public statement about the kind of king that he was. And John makes this really explicit by quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I'll I'll read the whole thing for you. Now, the writers of the Gospels often will take a bit, change things around, but this is what he's quoting from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He this king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus deliberately chooses a donkey to undercut the understanding, even the worship, you could say, of this crowd. This crowd who believed he would be a king made victorious through conquering armies. Jesus is the king. He he knows that. But he's a king who's going to bring peace in a way that no one expected. Instead of being the kind of king that everyone expected, who would kill his enemies by amassing an army, who would bring peace through violence, Jesus, the king, would create final peace for the whole world by letting his enemies kill him. That's a very different kind of king. Think of how different this would have been from what the crowd was thinking on that day, what they were expecting. I mean, I think they're thinking, wait a minute here. We finally have a leader. We have, wait, we have a leader who can raise people from the dead. I mean, it, when I was thinking about that this week, I was like, I mean, that, that really is a game changer. It's, Hello, immortal army. You know, I mean, who can stand against an army that has a leader who can just walk around raising them back from the dead? A couple thousand guys could take down any empire you can name. I can just imagine they're saying, step aside, Rome. King Jesus is here. As fast as they can cut us down, he can raise us up. We are going to be unstoppable. When they worship him, when they say, this is the one who will save us, they mean save us from Rome. They mean come and conquer the way that we believe he should. And when they proclaim Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they mean comes in the name of the Lord to cut down our enemies, not be cut down by them. When they hail him as the king of Israel, they didn't know that he was going to defeat. You know, he would not defeat through an immortal army, but he would rather defeat death by taking death to himself, by dying in their place, in our place. He was going to be a king, yes, but John, the writer, Everything in the book, I mean, I could just take you through and show you the whole thing. Everything, he marches through the book, talking about the time that Jesus would be glorified, the time he'd be enthroned, the time he'd become king. And every step of the way, you start to realize he's talking about the cross. That Jesus would become king and be throned on a cross. And that his coronation before the watching world would be by cruel Roman crucifixion, that this is the kind of king he will be. They worship Jesus defined by their own expectations 
their own view of what salvation must mean. How do we know that? Because John actually interjects in here. He does it a few times through his book. He actually tells us that they did not know what was going on. They didn't understand what was happening. Not until after. Not until after Jesus rose again from the dead. Not until after he's glorified, the Holy Spirit had been given. As I mentioned already earlier in John, people had already tried to make Jesus their king by force, actually. There was a moment earlier in the story where they were like, he's our king, let's, let's, let's force him into kingship. And Jesus ducked, went hiding in the mountains to avoid that. I think on this day, people thought, finally it's happening. No one, no one understood what was really going on, not even the disciples. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, without the Holy Spirit coming, they were unable to see Jesus for who he really was. In spite of all the signs, in spite of everything he had said, everything he had done. The story, of course, leaves us, as all the other John stories do, with people responding in a variety of ways. Mostly in this story, the people who are responding in faith don't really know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing, even when they exalt Jesus. The words they're speaking are true, but what they think is going to happen is quite different. And of course, there are those who are now off the fence. They've been waiting. I love the comment of the Pharisees. This is getting us nowhere. You think, what's getting you nowhere? Basically, what they mean is ignoring him and hoping he'll go away. Is getting them nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. The author, John, loves to put those kinds of words in the enemy's mouth. Yes, the whole world is going after him. It's a beautiful thing. Well, how does this come home for us? What's the practical application for us? Walked you through the story. I tried to tease out some of what's going on. I think the challenge for me this week, which I want to convey to you, is that though we do worship Jesus on the other side of his death and resurrection, And though anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus has received the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we are able to see Jesus and we're able to respond to him, though that is true, we can be guilty of worshiping Jesus more according to our own definition rather than who he has revealed himself to be. When we worship Jesus, even when we pray and we sing and we offer our work to God or maybe we speak a word of praise, a blessing we've received or a gift we've received or, or, or maybe we, we cry out for help on a difficult day. The reality is, the question is, are we worshiping Jesus for who he really is? Or as we have simply imagined him to be? I was really challenged by this as I reflected on it this week. The challenge to let Jesus define for us who he is. Let him reveal to us who he is. Let him open up himself to us. Shattering our illusions, shattering our false assumptions, even shattering our expectations so that we can truly follow him for who he really is. Four things kind of came out to me as sort of practical ways we can respond to this. The first is that we need to let the Holy Spirit actually reveal Jesus to us through the Bible. That is actually where it all starts. That's why we are a Bible church. And we urge you, ourselves, we together urge one another to make daily scripture reading or listening, taking in God's word as part of our daily practice. That for a few minutes a day, for some of us, it might only be five minutes. It might be on your way to work in the car, I don't know. But that we, uh, on a daily basis, take God's word in. The truth is the stats are pretty abysmal. And I don't say that as any measure of guilt, like you know me, to know I do not get into that. But I'm telling you, the statistics on people who would say, I follow Jesus, I believe Jesus, I trust Jesus, 
But the statistics are very, very low of, of people who even read the Bible a few times a week. Really, really low. So I'm always challenged by that because I think, well, that's interesting. How can we inspire? How can we encourage one another? What, what's in the way? I know we're busy and I, I know we get intimidated and I know things just slide off. I know all that. But what can we do to inspire one another so that we can make taking God's word in a regular part? Because this is primary for how we actually understand who Jesus really is. We receive a lot of different ideas from culture, from background, things we were told, even things we were told about what the Bible says. We receive a lot of things, but if we're not going to the primary source, it's difficult for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who Jesus really is. And so making Scripture, reading or taking it in in some way on a daily basis is critical. But more than that, we believe firmly as a church that it's not good enough to just do that. It's awesome, it's important, but it's not good enough. That actually, we can't really understand who Jesus is and follow him if we only ever read or study alone. That actually studying in groups, getting around God's word and being challenged by what other people think, what other people see, challenges that come from God's word together to our community is critical to maturity. It's critical for us as Christians following Jesus. We need to let Jesus tell us who he is. And the way he does that is through this little book, big book. Well, then, second, we acknowledge the ways that we try to fit Jesus into our cultural boxes. This is super tough. I actually think this is rooted in the first. That it's as we study scripture, as we take God's word in, as we study it in groups and maybe with people that are different than us, look different than us, from different backgrounds than us, different experiences than us, new in the Bible, old in the Bible, people from different maybe spiritual traditions, as we study that together... What happens is we are then able to begin acknowledging ways that we have always heard it that may or may not be true. And you know what? If you follow Jesus for a long time, that is really tough for you. Because you actually think you already know what it says. And on some of the things, you actually think you not only know what it says, but you are right. And guess what? You aren't. Not on everything. I know I'm not. I mean, the big challenge is, right? If I knew all the areas I was wrong, I'd change them. I just don't know what they are. (sighs) We need each other, right? So that we can acknowledge the ways that we have tried to fit Jesus into a cultural box. Maybe, Maybe we've adopted ways of seeing Jesus that he's kind of all fluff and there's no steel there. And he doesn't really challenge us. And we can carry around these really... Strange ideas about Jesus. It's when we get into God's word and we begin to discover who he is through the gospel, through his, through the whole story, that we, that view begins to be challenged. But for some of us, perhaps we've carried a view of Jesus that's more harsh. We need to reconnect with the story of Jesus and the way he treats people, the way he loves people that are in difficult circumstances. He loves people that are messed up and see him change our hearts for others. Or maybe... Maybe for some, we've reimagined the Christian faith to be somehow about making you more comfortable or wealthy or just have a good life. When in reality, Jesus is calling us to follow him into his mission, to give it all up for what he wants to do in the world. We can co-opt Jesus as they did, just as they did on that road to Jerusalem. We can take Jesus and try to fit him into the things that we think he should be about. 
And it's crucial that we allow ourselves to be challenged by each other and by the Holy Spirit. So we're not just worshiping Jesus because he's accomplishing some version of salvation that we brought to the table as opposed to what he is really trying to do. The third thing is specifically related to when we gather and worship together. It applies to everything, but I want to talk about our corporate worship. And that is that we decenter ourselves. Here's the deal, and I know it can be shocking to some of us. Uh, shocking to me, I know. But worship is actually not about me. It isn't. It's not about you either. Now, I know that can sort of roll off the tongue. We think, yeah, I know. And I know that as leaders and as pastors and as, you know, we are deeply concerned that our gatherings together, that each person who comes is invited, is encouraged, is enabled, that there aren't things that pull away and distract and do. We're really concerned that when people, when we gather together, we are able to really see Jesus and really worship him and be, be drawn into experience. And for people who aren't even followers of Jesus yet or haven't decided to follow yet, to take a step toward Jesus. And even as they begin to mouth the songs and sing to him, that they find their own hearts are changing. And for all of us as we gather, we're super concerned about that. But here's the deal. When we gather as God's people, we do not gather to be served. You are not at a shopping mall where you come in and just consume a few items. Now, I know that you know that, but I, it was a good reminder for me that we don't gather to worship and then decide at the end, I love this one, because I know, sometimes you do it, right? How was worship today? In other words, did I like the music? Did it make me feel good? Right? You know, did, 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 it, did it do it for me? We evaluate the gathered worship according to our preferences or the things that I like when it's not about me or the things that I like. It is about Jesus and giving praise to Jesus. That is what it's all about. I'm not dismissing the kind of conversations we need to have to figure all that out. I'm not. What I'm challenging myself on and us as a community is to see that how easy it is to make ourselves the center of worship and not Jesus. Exactly what they were doing on that road to Jerusalem. They're making themselves, their expectation, what they like at the center. And when we gather to worship Jesus, we need to be willing to let him be praised, making it all about him. Making his name famous. Putting our preferences to the side. This is one of the values of worshiping together with different styles. It's one of the advantages of worshiping together with other groups. Uh, If you've never had the experience of worshiping together in a context where it's being, uh, songs are being sung or prayers are being prayed in a different language, it's amazing. Talk about being decentered. I remember myself, I've had the experience a few different times, but I remember being in worship services. uh, I was in Haiti for a few months once and, and, uh, Every Sunday, we'd gather for worship and you'd sing all these songs. And I did pick up some of the Creole, but, you know, I was lousy. And I'd sing these songs in English to my heart's content because most of them were identifiable songs. And it was so powerful to hear different voices singing a language I couldn't understand. And we remembered that they're giving praise to God. I have no idea what they're saying. Now, for a Pentecostal boy raised with lots of tongues, that was okay. But, you know, this was an experience of that in the, in, in the, in the real. And, and, and being able to just worship God together and, and realize that, oh, isn't that great to hear in worship? Well, in, a, in perhaps a less dramatic way, when we gather, we're reminded that we are here to give praise to God, to do whatever it takes to serve one another so that we can lift up the name of Jesus. He's worthy of it. We decenter ourselves. And then the fourth one, and just as I realized these things toward the end, I realized, you know, we do still need to acknowledge that there's a depth of mystery. Even 
when there is a real clarity around the revelation of Jesus. And I really believe there is clarity. People that say, oh, we can't really know. It's like, no, actually, Jesus was pretty clear about who he was. But we still acknowledge that we don't know everything about Jesus. We, we don't know everything about God. But there's a mystery here. And when we, when we worship Jesus, we, we submit ourselves to him. We submit our, our minds and our hearts. We submit our, our expectations. We, we submit our understandings to him and, and, and to the Holy Spirit and through his word. And we say, Jesus, we just come to worship you and, and we want to exalt you. And we acknowledge that we don't even fully understand what that means. We submit ourselves to you. We lift you up as we bow down. My heart for us as a church, our heart, as the leadership team and the staff, our heart is that we would become a church that just worships. Worships as we gather. Worships as, as, as we are out in the community. Whether you're driving, whether you're working, where everything we're doing is given to the glory of God but that we're coming together in in times, maybe it's at a coffee shop, maybe it's in a connect group, maybe it's when we gather here that we come and we say, isn't it awesome to be able to come together and really give hearts fully devoted to Jesus, to give praise to that, to give voice to how great Jesus is. And that is my desire for us as a community. I know we have to grow in that. I think we always do. But I love seeing the heart of worship as it grows in us as a community, as it's shaped in us, knowing that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And as we worship him, as his name is praised, we are growing as his people. We are following him more faithfully. The people on that day to Jerusalem, they didn't really get what Jesus was doing. They gave him high praise that they had interpreted in a different way. It didn't mean that praise wasn't true, though. Jesus had come as their deliverer king, and he would crush their enemy in the name of the Lord. And even though they misunderstood what that was all about, it didn't change the fact that he was still doing it for them, that he was still worthy of their praise. He is our king. He is our deliverer. He did go to Jerusalem on that Passover weekend to become the lamb that was slain so that we could go free. And because of his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, we're able now to stand and sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And know that we're giving true worship to the one who has delivered us and who leads us today. Isn't that amazing? I was challenged by that. And I hope and pray that for you, for us, as we move forward as a church, that we'll be continually challenged to worship him for who he really is. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we are thankful for you, even though there are times where we do not really know what's going on. We confess that in humility and ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. I pray that as a community, we would sink ourselves into your word and let your your word penetrate our our cultural assumptions, our barriers, our hearts. I pray that you would would give us ways in. You would overcome the, the things we've set up in our lives that suggest we're too busy or there's things that prevent us from reading or hearing your word that we'd, we'd, we'd figure out ways past that. You'd give us insight and courage and help us to move together into groups so that we can really hear you and see you so that we can grow in the worship of who you really are and, and know that as we worship you, Jesus, we are transformed by you. We confess our sin to you that we often have forced you or tried to force you to be a king in our own way. We repent of that, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would just reveal yourself to us so that we can follow you fully. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you today.
I'm glad you were here. Let's keep praying for all those who are sick among us. There are many. Going home to one myself. So, and uh, and anyway, let's just keep praying for each other. And God bless you this week as you go.